0: आपना राशुन छेन रेडियो क्वार्न्टाइन कोरकाता एका की थेकोना अशो
1: of us support for George
0: Floyd. বন্ধুরা আপনারা Quarantine, রেডিও কোয়ারেন্টাইন কলকাতা। একা কি থেকো অসময়ে। Black Lives Matter episode dispatch from London. আমরা jani, জানি মার্কিন যুক্তরাজ্যে পুলিশের দ্বারা জর্জ ফ্লয়েডের হত্যার পরে সেই দেশে ব্ল্যাক লাইভস ম্যাটার প্রোটেস্ট বিরাট আকার ধারণ করেছে এবং বর্ণবাদ বিরোধী আন্দোলন তুঙ্গে উঠেছে এমনকি করোনার সময়েও জীবনের ঝুঁকি নিয়ে অসংখ্য তরুণ তরুণী তারা পথে নেমেছেন এবং বর্ণবাদের বিরুদ্ধে সারা পৃথিবী তারা আওয়াজ তুলেছেন বর্ণবাদের বিরুদ্ধে কালو মানুষের লড়াই বহু পুরনো কিন্তু বর্তমান সময়ে এই যে ব্ল্যাক লাইভস ম্যাটার প্রতিবাদগুলি বা প্রতিরোধ আবার নতুন করে উঠে এসেছে তা বর্ণবাদ বিরোধিতার পাশাপশি এবং তার সাথে এক করে সাম্রাজ্যবাদ বিরোধিতা এবং উপনিবেশবাদ বিরোধিতার কথাও খুব सजারে সামনে এনেছে এবং একই সাথে এই প্রতিবাদগুলি পুঁজিবাদের বিরুদ্ধেও বর্তমান পুঁজিবাদের আমরা দেখতে পেয়ে যেসে এখানে ইতিহাসকেও প্রশ্ন করা হয়েছে। ইতিহাসেের হিরো যারা। তথা কথিত জাতীয় আইকন তাদের বর্ণবাদী অতিতকে তুলে এনে তাদের কেন ন্যাশনাল হি বা জাতীয় আইকন করা হয়েছে সেই প্রশ্ন উঠিয়েছেন এখনকার এবং তারা। একটি মূর্তিভাঙা আন্দোলনও সংগঠিত করেছেন যেটি ছড়িয়ে গেছে মার্কিন যুক্তরাষ্ট্র থেকে ইউরোপের বিভিন্ন অংশে বিশেষ করে বিশেষ করে যার মধ্যে ব্রিটেন একটি গুরুত্বপূর্ণ ভৌগোলিক অবস্থান সেই ব্রিটেনের দুই তরুণ সমাজকর্মী অরন্য আর্জান এবং ক্যামেরন जोशी তারা আমাদের সাথে আজকে কিছু কথা ভাগ করে নেবেন তারা নিজেরাও এই black lives matter protest এ অংশ গ্রহণ করেছিলেন প্রত্যক্ষভাবে এছাড়াও এই তরুণ তরুণীরা সাম্প্রতিককালে অনেকগুলি খুব গুরুত্বপূর্ণ পুঁজিবাদ বিরোধী আন্দোলনের অংশ হয়ে উঠেছেন যার মধ্যে একটি ছিল বছর দুয়েক আগে যে ক্লাইমেট সারা পৃথিবী জুড়ে যেখানে পরিবেশ নিয়ে প্রশ্ন করা হচ্ছে পরিবেশ বাঁচানোর কথা বলা হচ্ছে কিন্তু শুধু পরিবেশ বাঁচানোর কথাই নয় সেটার সাথে এই পুঁজিবাদী কথামও এই নব উদারবাদী সেটা যে কি পরিবেশ বিধ্বস্তী সেই তুলে আনা হচ্ছে সবশেষে পরিবেশ যদি বাঁচাতেই হয় তবে এই ব্যবস্থা বদল করতে হবে কিভাবে এই ব্যবস্থা বদল করতে হবে সেই কথা তুলে আনছে সাম্যবাদী দুনিয়ার কথা তুলে আনছে এই समस्त প্রোটেস্টেও আমাদের এই আলোচক তারা অংশ নিয়েছিলেন সেই সময়ের অভিকর্তা তাদেরকে অনেকটাই অনেটটাই পরিณাত করে তুলেছিল রাজনৈতিকভাবে তাদের তাদের প্রজন্মকে বলা যেতে পারে এবং তারা তারপরে আজকের দিনে এই ব্ল্যাক লাইভস অংশ হয়েছে এই সাম্প্রতিক আন্দোলনগুলি নিয়েও তাদের আলোচনায় আজকে কথা উঠে আসবে আসুন আমরা শুনি আজকের এখনকার অনুষ্ঠান ব্ল্যাক লাইভস ম্যাটার এপিসোড ডিসপ্যাচ फ्रॉम লন্ডন শুনছেন রেডিও কলকাতা
2: Hello, and welcome. My name's Arjan.
3: And I'm Cameron.
2: And we are part of Global Justice Rebellion. Uh, Today, we are bringing you a dispatch from London about the recent Black Lives Matter protests. Um, Our experiences of them as activists of South Asian descent living in London, Um, our thoughts about the political processes involved and the conversations around race uh, and protest in the UK right now, as well as beyond, of course, and our thoughts on what might be next. So I hope you enjoy. So just to start with, maybe we want to introduce ourselves very briefly. Do you want to Do you want to go first, Cameron?
3: Yeah, sure. Um, so my name's Cameron. Uh, I am a young person, so I'm 24. I live in London. Um, And I've been sort of in activist movements for about two, two and a half years. Uh, Right now I mainly do stuff with, as Arjun said, Global Justice Rebellion, which is an environmental justice group. Um, And um, I'm half Indian, so my dad, uh, his family are originally from Gujarat in uh, in West India, Uh, but they lived in Tanzania and other East African countries for almost 100 years. Um, and they came here in the 70s. Uh, and yeah, I think I think that's me pretty much.
2: I'm Arjan. I'm Arjan. But everyone calls me Arjan. I am Bangali. And I've grown up in London, but I've moved back to Calcutta. I've moved back and forth uh, between the two places um, for the most of my life. I've been living back in London now for a little over six years. Um, And yeah, we've been involved with Global Justice Rebellion, Cameron and I, uh, since last September in the lead up to the big climate protests uh, that happened in London last October. And work that we've been doing as a group um, is finding those links between climate change and race and colonialism and, and understanding the, the, the overlaps between these different things, uh, and seeing how to understand and to be able to really uh, prevent the worst outcomes of climate change that we need to actually understand how these different things are, are related. And one of the main things that we try to do as a group um, is to try to build networks of solidarity with frontline groups uh, around the world. So yeah, and and, I mean, do you want to add a little bit more about us as a group, Cameron?
3: Uh, Yeah, sure. So Global Justice Rebellion is a strange uh, group. It's not just any other, like any other climate justice group. We were basically formed in the aftermath of a huge group here in the UK called Extinction Rebellion. And they basically started to pioneer Uh, non-violent civil disobedience uh, as a reaction to how serious the climate crisis was getting and how serious the inaction was getting uh, among different powers and government and the corporate world. But this movement was really, really criticised for a long time because it basically didn't want to appear political and it certainly did not want to appear left-wing. So it rested on respectability politics, it rested on appeals to Conservatives Uh, in order to build its movement and that was really it also rested on a good relationship with the police these things really were controversial and lots of people criticized XR which is Extinction Rebellion but Global Justice Rebellion was founded as a way to sort of practically engage because XR brought a huge wave of civil disobedience it wasn't it wasn't good enough to just criticize we had to go there and just sort of make the change that we needed and try and build the type of XR that we wanted to see and we took part in uh, a rebellion last October. Rebellion being a week of action. um, And we're doing pretty well, I'd say. There are loads of activists within Extinction Rebellion who are new to the whole thing, new to activism. uh, And they are moved and really motivated by our climate justice perspective. And it's really beginning to filter through to the rest of the movement uh, just in the last few weeks, uh, which I think is an amazing success of ours.
2: Excellent. And uh, yeah, we will go further into sort of what the future uh, might hold in terms of both Global Justice Rebellion, as well as um, the Black Lives Matter protests. Um, but we'll get into that a little bit further into into this episode. Uh, but first, I feel like it would be good for us to give a quick rundown. Uh, maybe for people who haven't been paying as close attention uh, to the protests uh, just a quick timeline of of events of how things actually of what's actually happened with these protests so I mean I'm sure most of you probably know this but just to sort of go through it again on the on the 25th of May a man named George Floyd was he used a, a fake20 dollar note to buy a pack of cigarettes from a, from a grocery store in Minneapolis, uh, which is in the Midwest in, in the United States. Um, when it was found out that he'd used a, a fake $20 note, he was asked to return the pack of cigarettes from the, the store owners. When he refused to do that, the police were called to the scene. And when he, quote unquote, refused to comply, he was uh, dragged out of his car uh, and an officer named Derek Chauvin, uh, an officer with a particularly long history of, of um, violence, particularly against non-white people, knelt on his neck for, what, what was it, 8 minutes and 37 seconds? While he said, I can't breathe. This video, of course, went viral. George Floyd died very shortly after this. There was they, they tried to cover up the murder in the immediate aftermath. The initial medical report actually said, didn't didn't claim anything about whether the policeman kneeling on his neck actually killed him or not. Um, it just kept things intentionally very vague. They had to do um, a, a separate third party uh, autopsy um, to actually get the correct um, report of actually what killed him. Uh, this was part of the reason, you know, why people in Minneapolis were so angry. Aside from the fact, of course, that police violence against black people in the united states is it's absurd it is it is a scandal i mean it is an outrage and this is not just been something that's happening that it's not just something that's been happening for the last 5 years or 10 years this is this is an integral part of american history of of american society and so Within the next couple of days, there were protests in Minneapolis. And uh, on the early hours of the 28th of May, um, the third precinct uh, of Minneapolis uh, was burnt down by a largely uh, unarmed group of citizens. And those images, they went viral everywhere. And within a a day uh, or two, uh, there were protests in every single one of the 50 states in the United States. And by the 1st of June, Donald Trump had announced that, th- that he would bring the, the army in.
3: Just wanted to, 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 just wanted to interject briefly. Um, I remember that when the third precinct was burnt down, the, the most amazing thing was that polls were commissioned straight after, asking people if they supported that. And more people supported that precinct station being burnt down than viewed either Joe Biden or Donald Trump favourably burning down a police station was more popular at that time than Donald Trump or Joe Biden. I think that's incredible.
2: Absolutely. And and there's a lot of reasons for that, especially in that particular moment. That outburst, that explosion of violence, it almost felt like it was meant to happen, you know, because the United States has handled COVID the worst in the whole world. Um, it has the highest number of deaths. Uh, And it has provided next to no protection whatsoever for its citizens. It offered a one-time payment of $1,200 for all citizens. Even that, for a lot of people, hasn't even been paid out. And this is three months later. And more than 40 million people have lost their jobs since the start of COVID. I mean, these are numbers which have never been seen before. And so, of course tensions are extremely high under the surface. Uh, obviously, in India, the, the situation with COVID has been absolutely disastrous. And the things that and things seem to be getting even worse right now. Uh, and in particular, uh, to do with uh, the impact that it's had on on the poorest workers, laborers, um, who have of course, been the hardest hit. Um, and especially in the U- United States, where the majority of people uh, have their health care tied to their work. Uh, in the middle of a pandemic, to lose your healthcare, everything sort of starts to collapse at that point. And so those those protests, they really escalated, they, they sort of built up momentum faster than anyone could have really predicted or expected. And within days there were protests around the world, uh, whether in Rio de Janeiro, in Brazil, in Auckland, in New Zealand, in Paris. In France uh, and of course uh, in the UK as well. Do you want to? Were you at the very first protest in the UK, Cameron? I think that was on the, the second. Uh, that was on the second of uh, of June.
3: Yeah, so that's not very long after George Floyd's murder. This was still at the time when in the UK we had very strict COVID nineteen measures. Um, you know, the sort of the the breaking of. The Breaking in, like, people doing public things hadn't really started to happen yet. So this protest, you know, it was a bit dodgy. um, And, you know, people didn't really want to go. But I did go. And I went because, to be honest with you, watching, you know, on my phone that weekend when all this was happening, I was watching video after video of protesters being shot in the face with rubber bullets, tear gas, beaten up in the streets people like medics, um, having them and their patients being uh, shot at by cops in broad daylight. I've never seen this kind of violence in my life. And I was just watching in front of me, the police provoke protesters into violence just because they knew they could do whatever the hell they wanted after that. And it was like war, it was horrible. And it really affected me. I was worried that um, what the police were doing, I mean, this is a police riot, is basically what I saw, a police riot. And I was worried that what the police were doing was they were drawing, they were basically challenging the Black Lives Matter movement to a fight, to a fight that they knew they'd win and that they would crush this movement for, you know, what could maybe be 10 years until something like that could recover. And it was terrifying. I couldn't really get that out of my head. So I went to this march. Um, I wanted to stand in solidarity. And there were like two, 3,000 people there, which is a lot. And we went through London. As we went through London... Uh, The British police, of which there were only about 20 uh, at this protest, they would then stand in front of us as we're going past roads and bridges, just as, you know, trying to sort of stop us, but they knew they didn't really have the numbers. And every time they did that, it inflamed the crowd. uh, And they just let it happen. They didn't really seem to be bothered. Then they'd sort of retreat eventually. They did that like four or five times. Each time there was more police, each time there was sometimes some riot police. And they knew each time it inflamed the crowd, but they did anyway. And eventually it led to people chucking stuff at cops to fights between cops and protesters. And it basically got off the Black Lives Matter movement in the UK, got it off to a start that worried me because it seemed the police here were doing the same thing as the United States police. They were provoking protesters. And I was worried this would be used similarly as an excuse to clamp down
2: um, but yeah, yeah, and I think so. So that protest was on a Tuesday, I believe, and it was Tuesday the second of of June, and that was also the first week after the um, the half term holidays, uh, because I I work in a school, and so uh, there's half term holidays um, every sort of six weeks or so, uh, and obviously since the start of COVID, all the well since the start of the lockdown when all the schools got closed. Um, None of us had actually been into work, well, a a lot of us. I hadn't been into work for about maybe two and a half months before that point, um, or at least two months. And I was due to go into work uh, the day after, so on the 3rd. uh, And I knew that there was also meant to be a protest on that day, on on the 3rd, uh, which was supposed to be um, in Hyde Park, which is the biggest park in central London. And I was on my way back from work that day. So this was the Wednesday. This was the day after Cameron had just mentioned. And I was speaking to a friend on the phone and we were just talking about all the protests and everything that was happening. And when I got into Victoria Station uh, in central London, I suddenly see a huge police presence there at the station. And I was really wondering what's going on. Why, Why are there so many police here? And... Then I see that the protest is actually the, the, that there's actually a march of people right there, and so I joined in. I felt like I couldn't not join in at that point, even though I'd actually lost my mask uh, earlier that earlier that day. I'd lost my mask while I was going into going into school at some point, but I still joined in, and it was really something quite remarkable. This protest. Firstly, I don't think anyone expected there to be that many people because on that Wednesday there must have been at least 50,000 people. In my nearly 20 years of going to protests in London, um, that was the first time that I'd seen so many young black kids from the council estates, um, which is government housing basically, um, uh, so many. You know, kids from those kinds of backgrounds who are at a protest in central London, which was in itself very encouraging. But also it was just very remarkable that day. Also, uh, quite a famous actor, John Boyega, who's in the the latest Star Wars movies. Uh, he was there at that protest because he's from South London and um, he's off. Uh, West African descent and he was at the protest and he gave an incredibly powerful speech which you know was was broadcast by by all the media that evening. I didn't hear the speech myself right I I missed that speech but I I saw it later. I didn't stay too long at that protest myself either because I uh, you know I'd been working since the morning and I felt very tired but I knew that there were going to be protests um, in the weekend so I, I knew I was definitely going to join there yeah um, um, just on that and I think um, that uh, was the weekend that I saw you wasn't it Cameron yeah yeah the protest
3: definitely yeah we were both there um, the protest in Hyde Park like I remember taking my friend and we didn't know how large it would be so I was telling him you know it could be a few hundred people you know don't raise your expectations too much we get there and it's so large that neither of us knew that John Boyega was giving a speech there until it had been reported in the news later because what we saw is a huge crowd of people sort of periodically clapping, but we didn't know, we couldn't even see the centre really. of it. We had no idea what they were clapping about. Um, all we did is just clap as other people clapped in front of us. Um, and apparently it was John Boyega giving a speech, which we had no idea about. But that was how large it was. It grown massively, uh, which was really incredible. And, you know, I had friends who came who'd, who basically cried. Um, you know, it was also, I, I'd never seen that amount of public support whenever we marched by you know roads and cars would toot their horns like bus drivers would put out the black power salute it was brilliant really brilliant
2: yeah and and i mean especially in london it's, it's obviously i mean there were a lot of black people there which once again young black people you know which was you know great to see but then it was very it was a very mixed crowd because it's london and Um, Lots of young white people there as well and lots of people from all sorts of different backgrounds. Um, Generally the crowds were very young and I think partially this is also to do with Covid. The fact that younger people have much lower risk generally with Covid. So I think younger people felt more, more safe, more confident to actually come out to the protests. I think also the fact that everyone had been home. For like two and a half months before that point, and hadn't really had a chance to see each other, to see their friends, and this was an opportunity to do that without being selfish, you know. <laughs> and, and there were no other distractions as well, you know. So there's no football happening. There's no uh, there's no pubs and clubs open that people can go to. There's no you know restaurants that people can go to at this point. So I mean, there's not really any anything else going on either, you know, to distract people. So on the, on the 6th, uh, which was the Saturday, that was the time when I saw you for the first time in a few months at, at the protest. Um, and I think there must have been at least 100,000 people in central London that day. It was massive. And basically the entirety, you know, from both sides of the river at some point was completely packed and you couldn't really, you couldn't really move. And it was incredibly peaceful you know um the atmosphere and i've been to many protests in london and and it was it was very peaceful and there was there was very much a a feeling of grief of solidarity but also one of celebration as well i think you know just also celebrating the fact that people were seeing each other again and it really felt like this was a very important Moment,
3: yeah, we we knew that at the time that it was so huge because um, I had like people I knew scattered about about the whole thing. There was a guy who came late and he just went to the to Parliament Square where the march was going to end up. Then there were people who were who were um still at still at the American Embassy where the march started and they were there at the same time, so you know, basically a huge huge stretch the whole length of the march route there were still people at the beginning as people were arriving at the end of it. So it's you know, a huge amount of people.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think it, it was a good sort of two mile radius kind of, which was completely packed and you couldn't move. And uh, then of course, later that evening, uh, there was a thunderstorm uh, and, uh, We were on our way back, I was actually with your friend there, um, and uh, we were on our way back to Parliament Square, because I think, yeah, we'd got separated at one point. And then so while we were on the way back, the thunderstorm hit, we hit under a bus stop. Once the rain sort of passed the worst part, we come into uh, Parliament Square and we see that It's very tense. The whole atmosphere there was very tense. And the police had set up two lines of riot police um, on two different sides of the square. And it looked like they were about to start kettling the crowd. Now, what had happened just before that, which we had actually missed, was that the mounted police, or the police on horseback, uh, had actually charged into the crowd. Just as the thunderstorm actually started, There was absolutely no reason to do this. Everyone who was there on the ground at the time will attest to this, that it was not provoked at all. Uh, The police decided to charge into a completely peaceful crowd. And the only reason you do that is to escalate the situation, is to get people to respond. Uh, And of course, when they did that, people started throwing things. And what else can you expect i'm sorry at that point you know when tensions are already extremely high what else can you actually expect and uh, one of the police officers horses i think got scared by the thunder and started running and this police officer hit a lamppost a traffic light and she fell it could have been a pretty bad injury but it she's she's okay um and then the horse ran without anyone on it uh, through the crowd and it actually trampled someone over and it injured a protester uh, as well uh, which is something that you know most people talk about the police officer who was hurt but there was a protester who was hurt as well and she uh, she's a black woman and she was uh, there as, as a protester and when she tried to make a complaint to the police they laughed at her and they said that they're not going to do anything so That's the thing, you know, I mean, something that was quite incredible about those videos that you were talking about, Cameron, coming in from the United States, right, was that this was a protest against police brutality and racism, and video after video after video after video showed the police being brutal and being racist to take these crowds down of peaceful protesters, of people who are not rising to their violence and who are standing with incredible courage um, in the face of rubber bullets in the face of tear gas in the face of batons um, and yes all sorts of all sorts of violence so yeah I mean I think that the, the very thing that the that the protests were actually supposed to be highlighting were being highlighted in these protests if that makes any sense and then of course, So this was on the 6th. And then then of course, on the 7th, which was the Sunday, was probably the biggest thing to happen in the the UK with these protests, which is in Bristol, Um, the statue of Edward Colston, uh, who was one of the worst slave traders. There had been campaigns for a very long time by the citizens of Bristol to actually take it down. There's been petitions after petitions, and nothing had actually happened. And so a bunch of Black Lives Matter protesters in Bristol uh, on the seventh. They tied a rope around the statue. They pulled it down. They dragged the statue and they dumped it into the into the harbour, into the river, um, which was especially symbolic, given that so many slaves on their way to America in Colston's ships um, had drowned. Um, you know, had died and were thrown overboard.
3: I mean, um, like that when when people pull down that statue. Um, it was amazing. It's literally the best thing I've seen all year. <laughs> um, yeah, it's it's like a great moment when you realise that we've got the power. We're defining what people are talking about. Like, we've tried to take down the statue for so long. You, We're just going to go and do it. And everyone's going to have to react to that. Um, and that sort of power, which is, you know, you see everywhere after that statue came down. Um, you know, it, it's amazing. It's a great feeling and... I think we all remember seeing that statue come down for the first time. Um, And it started a wave of uh, statues throughout the United States being torn down, Um, like hundreds and hundreds being torn down, burnt, squished, like chucked into lakes, you know, brilliant. Um, It was a really good turn of events. Um, And lots of uh, boroughs here in London were also taking down statues preemptively because they knew that they were going to be. They're going to be taken down, you know, eventually. It was just a matter of who's going to do it. And I really think that sort of direct action is a really good game changer. And I'm, I'm happy it happened.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And and it wasn't just uh, in the States. It was also in Belgium, for example, with the statue of King Leopold. And I mean, in the States, you know, there's been a discussion about Confederate statues in the southern states for a very long time you have to remember that these Confederate statues of these generals in the Confederate, uh, in the American Civil War, they were erected uh, long after the Civil War had actually happened, similar to the statue of Colston being put up long after he'd actually died. Uh, they were put up to basically remind black people who were still living there to know their place. Similarly, how, um, you know, the Ku Klux Klan were formed. I mean, there were a couple of different Ku Klux Klans in the in the States. Um but they were mostly formed uh, by con- former Confederate soldiers who, you know, they were so bitter at having lost the Civil War that they wanted to show the black man his place, essentially. And so this conversation has happened in the States for, a, for a quite a long time as well. And then, you know, things like Christopher Columbus as well, you know, um, and, uh, you know, Columbus Day, for example, um, you know, which is celebrated in the U.S., that's been a huge huge hot topic of debate as well. But when this happened, in my eyes, I mean, something quite interesting that that we saw was the sort of difference in response to statues being taken down over here as opposed to the States. And I think this is where that discussion, that that conversation around race, uh, both in the UK and the US, and, and the differences in those really started to kind of become more clear than ever. In the States, it feels like it's easier to actually have the conversation, even though the forms that racism take are in many ways more, more brutal, more violent, and more people are killed because of it. But at least there is acknowledgement that there is a problem there in the first place. Whereas over here, the number of people who started clutching their pearls, who started... Uh, hand-wringing about the statue being taken down of of a notorious slave trader, you know, who's been responsible for the deaths of tens of thousands of people and and an incalculable amount of damage. So many people started to talk about how, oh no, you know, the statue should have been taken down, you know, but that's not the right way to do it. And it, once again, started to become about the process and it started to become about... know respectability politics you know which is something that I think you were talking about before this discussion uh about the statues and about you know and then of course immediately at that point questions of Winston Churchill come up and obviously it's, it's quite interesting that we're recording this for an Indian audience uh where obviously for a largely Bengali audience and so uh Churchill has a very different connotation there uh, of course then than he does over here, and Churchill is on the five pound note over here and he's a he's a national hero, even though there has been a lot of debate, a lot of discussion about you know what his status is and what his legacy is uh, with the Bengal famine in, in particular as well. <laughs>
4: কার কাছে যাই আমার সুখের সফর ভাঙলো রে এই সুরাহি বাজারি ও ভাই রে ভাই ও তারে শাপpond চাশের কথা mone ke ur pore go mone ke ur pore are khudar jalay buker sawal o khudar jalay buker sawal maaye bikri kore re bazari
2: and what happened the week after those two protests that we talked about on the, on the 6th and the 7th. On the 13th, there was a fascist counter-protest of people protecting statues in London.
3: Yeah, so uh, after those, the first few weekends of protests, uh, Tommy Robinson, who is essentially like a well-known far-right uh, spokesperson activist, um, thug as well, He's been uh, convicted of violent crime a few times. Um,
2: he basically and, f- put out and fraud. And fraud, no doubt. And, yeah. and m- mortgage fraud. <laughs>
3: wow. He, um, yeah. <laughs> he put out a, a video saying, you know what, uh, screw these protesters. Are they going to take down Churchill, who is, you know, somewhat sacred in their circles? So, and he was like, you know, let's mobilise and we'll bring people down. Uh, to fight these people. So he's going to bring uh, fascists and thugs down to London uh, to basically fight the Black Lives Matter protesters, who a are, who are vast majority are Generation Z kids. So they're kids younger than me who are in the early 20s or late teens. Um, and these are, you know, football hooligans that Tom Robinson is trying to mobilise. And it happened. But in the lead-up, Black Lives Matter cancelled their march for safety reasons. They moved it to the next day. Um, to avoid Tommy, Tommy Robinson's goons. So I think that was a really good move because what happened then is Tommy Robinson's goons came down and, like, the difference... Not Tommy, Tommy
2: Robinson. Tommy Robinson didn't come.
3: Tommy Robinson didn't come. <laughs> he stayed at <alone>. home. <laughs> goons did. And the difference between them and us was on display for everyone to see. They pissed everywhere. They were drinking. They did not have any any real ideology, they were screaming racial slurs, beating up people in the streets, attacking police officers. No one is really, you know, able to sort of take their side in this in this like argument. So they'd really shown themselves to be like the kind of horrific people they are. Um, it still doesn't mean that the media took the side of Black Lives Matter protesters. Um, but it did show up the far right thugs for being uh, like... <laughs> Assholes,
2: basically. I mean, they were so horrendous that day, and that day was was terrifying in a way as well. For I mean, at least there must have been two, three thousand of these uh, fascist far right people in central London. Um, you know, which is I mean, London is an extremely mixed city. Um, so to see so many of these people in central London um, marching about like they own the place was very scary but they were so appalling i mean their behavior was just so dreadful that it was impossible even for the most right-wing media to actually uh excuse them but of course like cameron mentioned that does not mean that they took the side of black lives matter either they tried to of course make a false equivalence you know that so they, they tried to say, oh, but the Black Lives Matter protesters were also violent. And, you know, they, they would show clips of, you know, protesters throwing things at horses. When, like I mentioned, people were throwing things at horses once they had been charged, like they had been used to charge into the crowd. So almost in pretty much every single instance, I mean, it's it's unprovoked violence. And then, you know, what whatever happens after that, that is what people catch on camera. And... Even sort of beyond that, I mean, if you actually look at the record, you know, something that happened sort of right in the middle of these protests was there was a report about the impact of COVID on... Well, just the general impact of COVID, but especially uh, in relation to its impact on minority ethnic communities. And because of the tensions, the government gave as its official excuse because of the tensions around race in the UK right now, uh, that they will delay the publication of this prote- uh, of, of this report, which, I mean, if, if they don't think that that's going to make the tensions even worse, I don't know what they're thinking. So, obviously, they, they got a lot of backlash from that and they re- released the report the next day. And when they released the report, of course, it showed that uh, black and brown people have been vastly disproportionately affected uh, by COVID, Bangladeshi men in particular, uh, were found to be twice as likely to die of COVID than than, um, than than the average. And so, I mean, these things were also obviously adding to the tension when you look at the fact that during the uh, period of COVID lockdown, you know, when it was, you could get fined for going out of the house uh, without a reason, black and brown people received fines twice as much as white people during this time. And why? It's because the police were policing largely black and brown areas because they considered them to be high-crime areas, even though breaking COVID quarantine lockdown has little or nothing to do with that. So... You know when you look at the fact that in, in the U, in the UK the proportion compared to the actual population in the in the general population, the proportion of black people in prisons, for example, is higher than in the United States. the I think something like fifty percent of young offenders, so below 18 are from black and brown communities. Um, even though black people only make up, I think what is it? three percent of the British population. And, yeah, I mean, so it's completely disproportionate, you know, the representation, uh, you know, within the criminal justice system at the hands of, you know, police brutality, police violence. I mean, since the mid-90s, more than 150 uh, people, black and brown people have been killed under police custody, and there's not been a single prosecution. Uh, Every single time, the police officers have been acquitted and that's because there's an internal review which is done by the police so obviously you know they they don't find their own guilty ever the, the biggest example of this was of course in 2011 when the killing of uh, mark duggan sparked riots which um spread throughout the whole country within a couple of days do you remember much about the riots yourself i was
3: uh i
2: was like what was I 16 or something
3: so so I don't really know um I remember them happening um -hmm. but I don't I don't remember much political analysis of it at that time but yeah I mean as like as as people of Indian heritage this like it's been it's not been strange it's just I think we occupy like a like just a a unique position in this Mm -hmm. so we're not in obviously included Uh, when we talk about Black Lives Matter, obviously. Um, And I think it was years and years ago when I realised that, you know, because a lot of people still think about racism as between white and non-white people. Um, But actually, you know, black people not only have a unique experience, but are uniquely worse, far worse everywhere compared to everyone else. So their experience of racism is worse. Um, And also there is racism against black people, in lots of different non white communities, so the Indian diaspora is one good example of this um, my family is is an example of that as well so from the perspective of black people when we 're talking about black lives matter that 's something that's that's said in protest not just to uh, the white establishment but to communities up and down the u k that discriminate against black people um, and looking at white people in uh, in their communities you know they have to they have to challenge racism when it pops up and it's you know always going to pop up when a non-white person you know isn't in the room so you know challenging racism relies on having allies in other communities um, who will who will challenge it in their own areas uh, and communities and that's the same obviously for people from an Indian background so part of our place in this movement is to specifically challenge anti-black racism in indian communities yeah i think that's that's something well worth doing there's a lot of it there's also a lot of uh, islamophobic hatred as well um and if we don't tackle it no one's going to tackle it
2: absolutely and um i mean that that kind of brings me to a couple of points that i wanted to discuss anyway so obviously this particular discussion about anti-black racism within the South Asian community. This has been quite a you know, hot topic as well, quite a debated topic. One of the um, questions that's come up, for example, I mean, quite a common term used to describe non-white people uh, in the UK is BAME, which stands for Black, Asian and Minority Ethnic. It used to be BME, and then it was changed at some point to, black, uh, to BAME to include Asian as, as something separate as well. Uh, There's been quite a lot of criticism about this term, particularly as Cameron was was mentioning, uh, because of the fact that the experience, the day to day lived experience of racism uh, is very different from, you know, black and Asian people, black and South Asian people um, in, in the UK. Uh, For example, you know, uh, when it comes to, you know, drug searches, random drug searches, stop and search, this kind of thing, I think Asian people are three times as likely to get stopped by white people, whereas black people are, I think, nine or 10 times as likely to get stopped. So these kinds of things. And and, and one of the most interesting graphs I saw recently was about average household income in the UK. And obviously white British is still at the top, but Hindu Indians are actually almost almost on par with white british whereas black people earn about 70 percent of that Bangladeshis are actually the lowest uh Bangladeshis on average have the lowest household income in the uk and so something that we've seen quite uh, that i i've at least noticed quite uh quite a lot in these protests and in this general sort of movement as well in general sort of left politics um in the uk in the last sort of five years or so is that there is a lot more vocal presence, um, you know, within, from from the Muslim community, from, you know, Pakistani or, or Bangladeshi communities, rather than Hindu Indian communities. And this is something, it's quite noticeable actually, because there, there are a lot of Hindu Indians living in the UK, obviously, but I don't know what to say, very little support coming from those communities in these kinds of protests. And something that that you mentioned earlier, Cameron, that I wanted to kind of get back to you on as well is, is about the question of the East African um, Indian diaspora in particular, Because, of course, you know, we have a lot of these uh, cabinet ministers, you know, south of South Asian origin, uh, where, you know, like your Preeti Patel and your Rishi Sunak, you know, like and these kinds of people and and just just horrendous, horrendous people. But like a lot of them do come from, um, you know, from sort of Ugandan uh, or just just East African Indian uh, backgrounds. And so I think obviously you'll have a lot more familiarity with this because of your because of your family background. So what do you think it is particularly about? These communities that, that tend to make them far more conservative and have more sort of uh, prevalent racist attitudes within them?
3: Well, I think, um, so I should, I should preface this by saying that, like, in, in, in how I think, in most of my experiences, in um, looking at my life as a whole, I'm predominantly like a British person. I don't, I don't particularly know um, a huge amount about the Indian culture that is half my family, which is a really strange thing but that's just somehow been my life. Um, but I do think I know the answer to this. Um, so like my, <laughs> my, um, my Indian half of my family, when my mum, my dad, so their son, when he married my mum, they didn't speak to them for years until I was born. And they didn't speak to them because my mum's Iranian. She's not Muslim. None of, No one in her family are Muslim. Uh, they fled the Iranian uh, Islamic revolution. But because they're Iranian, my Indian half of the family didn't speak to them because they don't like Muslims. So there's serious, serious racism in that family. Um, my dad, um, you know, I don't, I don't, my grandpa died when I was younger, so I don't know much about him. But they lived in East Africa for a long time. And as with all settlers, these people um, held themselves and they thought they were better than the people whose land they settled and they had uh, a superior view of themselves compared to East African people. Um, the thing to note is that this goes back a long time. So for centuries there have been Indians in East Africa who have occupied a sort of merchant class or banker class uh, area of the economy. Um, that's, that's why Idi Amin of Uganda, he targeted them for forced removal because they held a larger proportion of the economy under their control than they were a proportion of the population. Um, so Indians throughout East Africa are not only settlers; they have disproportionate economic uh control, um, and they were sort of used by the British who control East Africa to divide and rule and create their own sort of uh, mini settler elite um, and I, you know and i don 't i have never um this is something i have to I have to deal with as in I have to change i 've never really talked to my uh, daddy ma my grandma about her attitudes to black people because i don't want to i don't want to hear what they are um but i know i have to, to do my bit uh, in trying to change views in the south asian community uh, but my dad um, has like a view i can only describe as being shared amongst like liberal uh liberal middle class people he like you know so we were talking about those uh, those fascists in parliament square earlier. The media didn't support Black Lives Matter in response to that. They held up a photo of um, this, this black guy um, sort of heroically saving a fascist-like goon from being beaten up by Black Lives Matter protesters. And he had he basically picked him up and he was taking him away from the protesters. So he was saving this guy, and it's a noble sort of heroic thing that it was painted out to be. But this is the way that, that the sort of liberal media... And the right wing media prefers to see anti racist protesters. They want us to do in the face of extreme violence, systemic violence, systemic economic discrimination. They want us to basically uphold the most noble aspects of human nature, be absolutely, uh, you know, kind and um, and like uh, benevolent in the face of that. But because if we, if we don't do that, then it delegitimizes us. They're basically bringing black people up to such a high standard. And that's my dad. My dad is like that. He basically thinks that, um, you know, he he really thinks that the the best sort of, um, you know, downtrodden person is the type of person that serves his role, be it as a servant or, you know, as like, uh, as a worker, does it faithfully and, and politely. What a lovely guy. Like that's, you know, that's his, that's the type of, uh, you know, oppressed person that he likes in particular. And that's a very liberal middle class thing. And I have no doubt that that's because his family, um, you know, have passed on all of these very implicit and maybe explicit ideas that black people are inferior. And, you know, and it's, you know, it passes on like that, that systematic racism.
2: I mean, that picture was a whole story in itself. I, I wish we could even go more into that because that picture deserves. Sort of its entire own analysis of the varying layers of racism that actually work within the media, within you know the general public, um, and so on. Um, but more specifically, I think yeah, you know, with, with with the question of you know these anti-oppression movements or struggles, I think so much of it does come down to you know your material conditions, right? And and like I mentioned, because the Hindu Indian community generally speaking in the UK have made it fairly well, and I mean they are they're they're, they're pretty well off generally speaking, um, and so. They have more invested. I mean, this is obviously a massive generalisation, but they, generally speaking, have more invested in the status quo and in the system. So there's less of a need to actually challenge it.
3: Totally, yeah, yeah. Something I forgot to mention that yeah, they they're all so wealthier, like you said, especially than Bangladeshi uh, people in this country. That's definitely part of it.
2: Um, Com- compared to the Bangladeshis, the Bangladeshis are, are not wealthy. That's the thing. Yeah uh, um, Absolutely, absolutely. And, um,
3: that, um, I think like there's an editor of Breitbart UK who is literally from the same background as my dad His parents were Tanzanian Indian settlers
2: Rahim uh, Kassam. Yeah, uh, yeah, that's the guy he, uh, he wrote a book about how uh, why Enoch Powell was right and I just had to imagine how much of a self-loathing brown person you have to be to write that book. I would just love for him to actually meet Enoch Powell in person, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and see what Enoch Powell would have made of him. <laughs> and I think for, for anyone listening who doesn't know who Enoch Powell is, he was a staunch racist MP uh, in, what was it, the 60s and 70s, wasn't it? Uh, and he gave this infamous speech, which is called the rivers of blood speech, where he basically said that uh, immigration into the country is going to lead to rivers of blood, you know, of violence, basically, because different cultures, different communities won't be able to mix. And I mean, it's age old racist talk, basically, you know, which it's the same, you know, uh, justification that was given to segregation in the southern United States. It's the same justification that was given to apartheid South Africa. And um, it's the same justification that's given for Hindus and Muslims in, the, in, in India. So it's an age-old racist argument that two communities aren't actually able to mix, you know. So that's why, you know, we have to have them separated. Something quite remarkable, which I think is definitely worth mentioning, is towards the end of June, Black Lives Matter UK in particular uh, made a, made a, uh, an official stand in solidarity with the Palestinian liberation movement now they possibly have done before as well i'm not sure but they definitely did that did that right now now i think the whole discussion around anti-semitism and israel-palestine and all of these things are so complicated and they are so that whole discussion has been so deeply damaged in the uk especially in the last four or five years with Jeremy Corbyn's Labour Party and the way that it was used to actually bring down um, the Labour Party. I think is that's something definitely worth sort of going into a little bit about how, you know, what happened during the election and, and the role that the media played in particular of um, branding somehow Corbyn, who is an, a lifelong anti-racist campaigner, um, as the racist candidate against Boris Johnson, who is a lifelong racist, who has been on public record saying some of the most outrageous racist things. I mean, this guy is the most openly racist British Prime Minister that there has been in at least the last 60, 70 years. And somehow Jeremy Corbyn, who is, like I said, one of the most committed anti-racists in British politics, to be branded as the racist candidate against that, it completely... Ruined and, and irreparably damaged the discussion around race in this country forever.
3: Yeah, um, like it's, it's a new, it seems to be a bit of a new phenomenon that we see more, I don't know about the rest of the world, but we see in the UK, which is where like one section of, uh, one ethnic minority group uh, is basically used against, like racism against them, it's twisted against uh, movements that are anti-racist. So in this case, um, the whole discussion of anti-Semitism, like whilst you know, it definitely exists on the left as it does everywhere else um, and it has its own sort of uh, special forms on the left and definitely needs to be called out on the left, um, it's only brought to prominence and being used because the media and the politicians, most of them uh, just don't like the left. They don't call out anti-Semitism uh, in their own organizations, let alone on their own side of the political spectrum. They they will not even talk about Islamophobia, which is so, so prevalent in this country. Um, so it's clear it's like, you know, being used disingenuously against, against you know, everyone, including Jewish people in this country. Um, and yeah, and it's been used against Black Lives Matter, which is crazy. So they put out a statement saying, um, like, we are in, like, you know were basically in, in giving unconditional solidarity to the Palestinians who are having their land carved up right now, um, and they said as part of that, I think it was like, um, it was basically they said as part of that they implied that there is uh, there is basically um, there is a lot of pushback, a silencing, silence. Yeah, there's, there is there is a silencing. That, yeah. yeah, and like that was picked up on by people and saying like this is this is anti-Semitic nonsense. It's not. I mean, it's not at all. There have been like councils, local councils that have been uh, that have like um, excluded BDS uh, organisers from using their facilities. Basically, like this, this sort of um, uh, anti-Palestinian like uh, organising and views uh, masks up as as protecting Jews from anti-Semitism quite a lot, um, and it's like very typical of like the white middle class and media class to focus on that rather than focus on the fact that, you know, anti-black racism in the United States has parallels with anti-Palestinian racism in Israel, you know, on the fact that look at what's happening in Israel, people are being shoved out of their homes, brought to worse land, like forced to, to, um, forced to survive on less and less. And this can be said the same of, the same can be said of black people in the United States Who's like household wealth has stayed the same or gone down since the civil rights era? You know, whose income compared to white people has stayed the same? You know, who who tens and millions of these people have gone to prison for possession of drugs, which are now becoming legal across the United States. Um, but you know, small tiny convictions like this, you can make an you can make comparisons. But this isn't the sort of thing that's that's on the agenda. As important as that is, it is you know. That particular word you used implies that there's some sort of like conspiracy, uh, and that's that's anti-Semitic.
2: If you look at, you know, um, historic black leaders like Malcolm X, like Fred Hampton, especially the more militant, um, you know, black civil rights leaders, um, they made it a very clear point that, you know, the the fate of black people in the United States is very similar to the fate of Palestinians, and uh, it well in Palestine because. Um, once you understand that Black people, especially in the States, exist more as subjects of an internal colonial repression, then I think things start to become a little bit clearer, you know, in terms of what these structures of oppression actually are. The kinds of, the, the means of repression, you know, we use, using the police of, of um, you know, sending people to jail for completely innocuous crimes, Um, for, you know, really disproportionate sentencing, all of these kinds of things, Um, you know, just the brutality at the hands of the police and so on. These are practices, you know, which have in the past been used by colonial powers in the colonies to actually maintain the colonies. And these are the exact same practices, which are then brought back home and used on your own citizens. And it just happens to be a particular Type of citizen that you use those practices on, and so once you sort of understand that, um, I think the, the, those kinds of movements of solidarity can be built. Uh, there's a huge amount of um, parallels, also not just with uh, the the U.S. but also with apartheid South Africa. I mean, there's there's also been an there's been a concerted attempt by um, by the Israeli government, uh, whether in the U.K. or in the U.S. to basically brand any form of pro-Palestinian activism as anti-Semitic. Um, in the U.S., it's gone as crazy as, for example, you know that in certain states, everyone has to pledge an allegiance to Israel. Uh, a, a teacher was, for example, I think it was in Texas that a teacher was um, was fired from her school for, for refusing to signed this Pledge of Allegiance, which includes things like that you're not allowed to boycott Israel. Um, even though, you know, you know, I mean, I mean, the whole thing is obviously completely absurd because, uh, you know, on the one hand, uh, if, if if they react violently, you know, through, through sort of insurgent actions, um, then that's branded as, you know, terrorism and violence. And then the Israeli Defense Force will just bomb Gaza again. Uh, but if you try to do the non-violent action, which is you know to to boycott, even then that's you know brand, branded as anti-Semitic, and so you know it's it's a lose-lose situation, and it's a similar thing to over here, for example. I mean, look at the the, the case of the Colston statue. You know, I mean, there's been for for, for years there's been. Uh, calls there's been petitions democratic you know processes to actually take the statue down which have been ignored, and then when people actually do it you know when those calls have been ignored when they do it they get blamed for doing that you know so it's 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 a sort of lose lose kinds of kind of situation uh, and so that's why these these conversations are always extremely disingenuous they don't actually they're not actually talking about the thing that they that they claim to be talking about and. Um, this particular sort of branding of the whole of the Black Lives Matter movement as anti Semitic, uh, this is this is now something that that the media, at least the the, the right wing media, which is like 90% of the media uh in the UK, the rest of the 10% being centrist, which is just slightly less right wing. Um uh this is the kind of line that that the majority of them are pushing now. And especially if you look at how how effective it was um in smearing jeremy corbyn and the whole of the left essentially as um as anti-semites um and obviously i mean like uh, all of my left-wing jewish friends are extremely distressed about this as i'm sure you can imagine because they're being used as a political football like. These people who claim to be caring about anti-Semitism, they don't care about anti-Semitism at all. Anti-Semitism is on the rise around the world. And it's on the rise from the far right. People that Benjamin Net- Netanyahu will have, you know, sell weapons to, you know, actual anti-Semites in the Ukrainian army, for example. You know, they don't actually care about these things. It's entirely, this is entirely political and it's a very cynical procedure. And so... What's kind of come to light definitely is at least within the sort of general public there seems to be a, a hierarchy of racism, and there seems to be a sort of uh, you know a hierarchy of which kind of racism gets given more precedence is actually given more and more importance, which is once again extremely damaging to the entire discussion. You know because all racism should be condemned equally strongly, but that's not quite what's happening right now. So. I think with that question, I think we can talk a little bit about the Labour Party, (laughs) can't we? Where do we even start?
3: Uh, So the UK Labour Party used to have Jeremy Corbyn as leader, who was uh, a proper left-wing politician, basically. Um, And uh, after he lost the last general election, in a really severe way, Labour hasn't had um, this few seats in our parliament, since the 30s. It's a long, long time. This is before Labour even became uh, like a dominant party in our politics. Um, You know, since then, there was was an election in Labour and a soft left candidate called Keir Starmer won. Keir Starmer basically won by portraying himself as a bridge candidate. So he, uh, he didn't want to get rid of the Corbyn project. That was like the sort of main thing that made him appeal to most people in the party. And he won that election. And then since then, he has basically made a series of really unsatisfactory calls that have shown um, his Labour Party uh, to just be not not left wing, basically. Um, So one of them was um, was changing the party's view on uh, the occupation of Kashmir by India um, and changing it to the opinion that this is an internal conflict. So we're not going to get involved rather than actually stand in solidarity with Kashmiri people. Um, But the other thing was that during this uh, sort of uh, season of Black Lives Matter protest, him and his deputy leader, Angela Rayner, took a knee. So that is, uh, you know, that's the symbol that's being used uh, by people to signify support for the movement. So that's all they did, they signified some support and then in in an interview with the media, he basically really tried to distance himself from the Black Lives Matter organisation, as he called it. So he's feeding there that trope that the Black Lives Matter organisation is a far-left thing and that actually the Black Lives Matter moment and movement and, you know, uh, idea is something different. And, you know, it just very conveniently happens to be something that isn't very difficult to do. It's not about getting rid of systematic racism, according to Keir Starmer, uh, or it's not about, you know, completely defunding, abolishing police forces it's about you know just a slight slight uh you know slightly less racist culture and that's it so that's that's obviously a convenient interpretation he's taken um and that's extremely unsatisfying it's a really it shows that now we don't have a friend in the Labour Party anymore it is riddled with support for serious systematic racism um, and there's no is no sort of vehicle to oppose it really. And it, and
2: it wasn't just those comments that he made. So uh, one of the one of the first things to really come to light um, as Keir Starmer became the leader was a leaked report from within the Labour Party about many of the things that had happened during Corbyn's time as leader, especially to do with internal sabotaging of various different processes. For example. Uh, processes, uh, complaints processes against anti-semitism which was sabotaged by the people that were actually in charge of these processes who were opponents of Corbyn from within the party. And they did it to make the leadership look worse. And the thing is, anti-semitism, it's it's an extremely old and a very particular form of racism which which exists, anti-semitic tropes exist in British language and British culture. Uh, And they have done for a very, very long time. And so it's not possible. It is simply not possible that in a party with half a million people that you can just get rid of it overnight. Um, But of course, this entire thing was weaponized in such a way to actually make it look like, oh, this these people claim to be an anti-racist party, but they have some cases of racism. Therefore, they are. definitely a racist party whereas you know the conservatives are literally letting back people into their party who are holocaust deniers you know who peddle actual anti-semitic conspiracy theories of things like cultural marxism so obviously the whole discussion is is very disingenuous and without getting too sidetracked about the the discussion about anti-semitism but i think I, i think it is important to to draw upon these things, especially in relation to uh, the question of the Labour Party, because I mean, a lot of the things that the Labour Party have done since Keir Starmer has become the leader, I think kind of go back to that and kind of go back to um, how that discussion about race was sort of damaged during the, especially during the election campaign. And one of the things that came out in the leaked report was, for example, about the treatment of senior black MPs within the Labour Party, for example, like Diane Abbott, who was the first black female MP in the UK. Uh, she's been an MP uh, in Hackney in East London since the 70s. And the way that she's been bullied and abused by, by um, officials within the Labour Party to the point of you know, being found crying in the bathroom, you know, because of the abuse that she's faced, racist abuse that she's faced. And when all of the all of these things came out in the in in this leaked report, there's been zero action taken about it. I mean, one of the sort of most alarming things with the Labour Party in recent times has been the fact that because of these comments that Cameron mentioned that, that Keir Starmer had made Regarding uh, you know distancing himself from the Black Lives Matter protests, um, you know saying that the whole demand of defunding the police uh, is not applicable. He himself used to be a public prosecutor, of course. I mean, he is close friends with the police, um, and and so I mean, he has pretty much pledged his unconditional support to the police, even though the the police in the UK is 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 a also a deeply racist institution and and refusing to acknowledge once again you know that there are problems over here i mean one of the main things that he mentioned in that interview is the fact that these protests these black lives matter protests in the wake of george floyd's death are supposedly about george floyd's murder and that's it you know and and, and about the the situation in the u.s and and as as if there aren't any sort of applicable you know uh, parallels, you know, of similar kind of issues um, uh, in the in the UK. So obviously, I mean, the, the the one of the biggest sort of issues with this after the comments that he made there was that Nigel Farage, who is one of the sort of most prominent far right politicians in the UK, um, endorsed those comments from Keir Starmer, and especially since then lots and lots and lots of black and brown people have been leaving the Labour Party to the point that uh, the Labour Party is now um, begging its black and brown members to basically stay, to not to leave. So this is clearly an issue. And it seems very much like uh, the Labour Party has has signalled that they are not willing to stand for the for the black and brown communities in the, in the UK. So just to sort of start wrapping up maybe we can just very quickly discuss a little bit about what we think might be next, you know, I think with these protests and with the whole situation the whole discussion around race. I mean, what do you think, Cameron?
3: Well, I think it depends on um on how organized the protests are. It obviously depends more on whether systematic racism is, you know, still going to rear its head in very protestable circumstances like murders, police murders but we know that's still going to be the case so that's definitely going to still be there there's still going to be moments which will galvanise severe like resistance um, but the last time we had this moment was five years ago in 2015 I do hope that the next time there is a round of Black Lives Matter protests it isn't going to take five years it might be you know quicker and I hope that Black Lives Matter organisers can Basically, get on the case and really push this stuff to happen, uh, you know, again and again repeatedly. Um, And I'm hoping that also what's next is connections between the anti-racist movement in this country and other movements, like the environmental movement that me and Arjun come from. And hopefully that can garner some serious resistance that, you know, now that we've lost the Labour Party, maybe that can be the political base that we need.
2: Yeah, I mean, last year, the the two rebellions, the two weeks of action by Extinction Rebellion in both May and in October were massive. And they did shut down large parts of central London. And some of the protests were very powerful, I think were very, very, uh, you know, necessary, especially, you know, when we protested the financial um, district in in, in uh, the bank area of London, basically. And it would obviously be inc- incredibly encouraging. I mean, even though I think that I have very particular views on Extinction Rebellion as a sort of just a as a, as a sort of centralized force. And in terms of, you know, um, its outward perception, you know, with other groups that have, for example, a lot of groups refuse to work with Extinction Rebellion because of their previous track record with things like race politics and class politics and, and the refusal to actually acknowledge these things. Um but um, there's obviously a huge num- number of people who have been moved by these movements and who have taken to activism because of these movements. And so if we are genuinely able to harness, you know, that energy, that manpower, um, there is a lot of potential there. And um yeah, like like we mentioned earlier, you know, I think if we if we want to address the questions of climate change, unless we discuss, you know, the the broader issues of race and class and uh, and and geopolitics so colonialism and so on, uh, then then we simply will not be able to address the, the the things that we need. The question is, you know, whether we do have how much time we have on our hands, and and obviously over here in the UK, it's a little bit easier maybe to say these things because we aren't as as close to the line of fire with climate change as Bengal is, for example. And and this is obviously a reality which is going to be far more severe in Calcutta, in in Bangladesh, you know, in places like this, in the Caribbeans, for example, you know, um, in the coming years. So, yeah, it's absolutely vital to actually build these, you know, networks of solidarity, of support, of sharing... Um, financial resources of sharing knowledge, uh, and and expertise uh, with one another. Uh, and I think that's definitely that's definitely the way forward. Um, in the UK, while you know, the protests have mostly calmed down for the moment, you know, there are plans for further protests over the course of the summer. So we're gonna have to see which of those exactly materialize obviously, with the whole situation with COVID. It's all very unclear, everyone's still very sort of apprehensive of you know, organizing things at the moment, but things seem to be moving. So once we know, we'll hopefully be able to maybe, you know, give a, well, hopefully, yeah, give a, give a second update sometime before the end of the summer. Uh, But yeah, I think for now, that's it from us. Um, I've been Arjun.
3: I've been uh, Cameron from Global Justice Rebellion.
2: And thank you so much for listening today. Uh, I hope you enjoyed what we had, what we had to say. And Thank you. Take care.
4: I are still on the long road to freedom. Whenever the ILWU takes a stand, the world Feels the reverberations, a powerful, collective thank you to the International Longshore and Warehouse Union. Yeah. Stands against the internment of Japanese Americans in the 1940s. We applaud the fact that you stood with Martin Luther King and civil rights activists in the 1960s. We know that you radicalized the struggle against South African apartheid in the 1980s. And we thank you for supporting Mumia Abu-Jamal for solidarity with the anti-capitalist Occupy Movement and for your resounding no to the racist state of Israel. And for your expression with those who call for justice in Palestine. And thank you especially now for speaking out against the brutal racist murderers of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Arbery, Rayshard Brooks, and the many others whose lives have been claimed by the structural violence of racism. Thank you for shutting down the ports today on Juneteenth in the end of slavery, the day we memorialize those who offered us hope for the future and the day when we renew
0: our commitment to the struggle for freedom radio quarantine Kolkata